Don't you reckon it's great to be back in the rhythm of life again? Like these conversations I've missed so much and... Yeah. But I thought about your point about sitting around the fire and... The tribal fire that we were... I can't even say that anymore. I know, it's it's a virtual fire now, Liz. We can't... Totally virtual. There are total fire bans going on and I just think so many people might be triggered by the whole fire thing now. Okay, so we're no longer sitting around the fire at the campsite. I liked your sitting around with a cuppa though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so now so now we're sitting with a cuppa, speaking with our still our tribe. Yeah. But definitely our colleagues who yeah. are out there roughing it at the moment actually. Yes. In Australia. Still. And but you and I get to just have these conversations again like we normally would. And today's is another one of those topics that you and I have talked about cried about shared our own experience of it but it is another one of those ones that we are really going to sink our teeth into and I know something that we've also been doing some research about it is but before we go straight in Liz hey welcome to social work stories podcast oh whoops sorry both to you and to all of our listeners (laughs) the person over there speaking non-stop is Liz Murphy thank you Thank you. <laughs> I got a roll I'm feeling today, frisky. everyone. I'm feeling very frisky. I, I love this topic. It's a great you know topic. Me. I'm Mim Fox. Hello, Mim. Hello. And um, hello, everyone. We are talking about a topic today that, Liz, we've been doing work in for about three years now, you and I. We had started our research on vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue in hospital social workers Coming up to nearly three years to the day. Yeah, we've been working with a great group of social workers in a few different hospitals around this, trying to really understand it and unpack it, looking at the impact of compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma. And this story that we're bringing you today is a colleague of ours, really, really personal experience of the impact uh, of compassion fatigue on him. Absolutely. So so that is what the focus is about. But... He, in order to get to that focus, he tells us about a very, very poignant case. And I'll just let people know that it is about the death of a baby. Um, but the focus is is definitely on the impact that it had on this social worker. But I need to warn you, this is one of those social workers that can really tell a riveting story the detail that he gives about the sights the sounds the the things he was thinking it's evocative it'll it's draw you so in so evocative and at times somewhat i found a little bit chilling it yeah painted there's such, a chilling aspect there is so but but if this is something that you think yep i'm not interested in hearing about the story come back and listen to Mim and I talk about the impact on the social worker because that's going to be our focus. All right, have a listen and we'll speak to you again in a minute. Um, so the case I'm going to talk about um, today uh, is quite unique in that I wouldn't frame that as being one of the more um, uh, challenging trauma cases that I experienced uh, across the grand scheme of the things I've been involved with over the course of my career, but it's one that has stuck with me across time. Uh, but also um, one where I very acutely became aware of uh, trying to understand what my role is and feeling somewhat helpless um, or insignificant in being able to affect change for someone who was experiencing such acute um, grief and distress. So it's a case of, uh, it was a case where I was on call 
uh, it was a Sunday morning um, at about three or four in the morning I got a call to come into the hospital because uh, a baby had um, become unresponsive and passed away overnight and been brought into the emergency department so I was asked to come in to provide support to the mother uh, who was there with the child. Uh, so I made my way into the hospital um, and as you tend to do with that kind of work kind of hypothesizing what that might be like when you get there and trying to frame how I might approach a situation such as that and what would I do. Um, that in itself is challenging because you don't really have a reference point yet or you, you're, not, you're out of the context. So I think often receiving that call can be very daunting because you're trying to pace yourself in the workplace when you're not at work, uh, but also then trying to work out what you might do um, to support a person in that situation. So I was going through all that on the way into, into the hospital um, I arrived and I, it was in the emergency department, so I got there, um, spoke to the medical staff, so the doctors and nurses who were involved in that situation, and there was an immense heaviness in the emergency department just about this particular case because clearly it was incredibly sad and uh, staff were quite distraught about um, trying to support the mother of this baby that had passed away. So this kind of real, I mean, almost jarring contrast of emergency department with sounds and, and fluorescent lights, but this real kind of deep heaviness in the emergency area. Um, I've, I've made my way into, there's a, like a, most emergency departments have like a, um, a, uh, like a family room where people go and um, conversations happen about things that are happening in emergency with families. So the mother of this baby was in there with the baby. Uh, there was also a two year old um, child there as well, looking completely lost and not really clear of what was going on. Uh, and there was a nurse uh, kneeling beside the mother who was holding the baby, um, I'll, I'll call her Chloe, um, uh, and the nurse was stroking the, the back of the mother who was cradling the, the baby that had passed away, um, and the nurse was also crying. So I walked into this, um, this family room we refer to it as, um, very dimly lit, there were no windows, it was the middle of the night anyway, but it's a very dim room with furniture that's just really, really well-worn. Um, so, um, and it, into a, what I would say is an incredibly emotionally intense and heavy environment. So coming, I guess from home really, um, into the emergency department that was full of fluorescent lighting and then moving back into this really visually dark, um, visually and emotionally dark area really. Um, so the mum was very understandably incredibly distressed um, she was clearly grieving that the death of her baby that had just occurred. Um, uh, there were moments where she also had s some lucidity, where she was able to sort of come out of that for a minute and have a conversation, but then would just go back into that acute distress. Um, uh, so the, the nurse left um, that room and sort of metaphorically handed over the baton of responsibility for that situation to me. So I was then left to try and work out what I was going to do in this situation. I remember at that time feeling incredibly um, ill-equipped to be able to affect any kind of meaningful change or, or support in this situation. I mean, what could I possibly do in this situation um, to make anything better? It was, that in itself was very jarring around. I had this responsibility to manage this situation and to support this person through what I would assume is uh, may well be the most traumatic thing they have been through or will go through in their life, um, but so ill-prepared um, and unable to do anything meaningful in this situation. While talking to the mother, or trying to talk to the mum, 
um, about what had happened and, and not really knowing what I was trying to ask her and not really knowing what I would say to her. In those moments when she was incredibly distressed, she kept repeating the same lines over and over. And it was, oh, Chloe, wake up, Chloe. It was, and that was a repeated um, phrase, almost as though Chloe was playing a game with her and by saying that Chloe would wake up and things would go back to normal. And she kept just repeating that same kind of phrase. She was stuck in that um, loop for a period of time of, oh, Chloe, oh, Chloe, wake up, Chloe. And that, for me, was laid down as a soundtrack to that experience of being in that room at that time. So, again, I just recall this, this feeling of being incredibly insignificant to do anything meaningful um, to change the situation for this person, but so incredibly, I would say, overwhelmed by the sense of responsibility for that situation. Um, the doctor came in at one point and did speak to um, the mother, Chloe's mother, um, to talk through kind of the medical aspect of um, what had occurred and what would happen next. I remember the doctor looking to me um, with this look on her face of trying to get reassurance or trying to check in if what she was saying was okay. I remember non-verbally giving her this sort of reassurance in that moment. Um, but again, it just reinforced to me that this is all sitting with me. They're also relying on me to be the person who's holding this together. Um, I, I spoke to that doctor afterwards um, when I had taken, taken myself out of the room. The doctor said, was that okay? Was what I said okay? And it was. She was very empathic and it, it, was, it was fine. It was good. But it just, again, hit me that I was the one that people were turning to to be front and centre in this situation. And it also struck me that the team collectively were supporting the mother of this baby. Um, and I was supporting the team in supporting this mother. But who was supporting me? I, kind of, I was left as the last person standing, trying to you know, hold everything together. But who was my person to sort of go to if I was needing to support the other people in the room? Um, it was a really surreal moment, I think, to have that revelation of um, questioning. I think when I understood that I felt very ill-equipped to be in this situation that I was finding so incredibly confronting, um, I remember questioning the profession in the sense that how did the profession that I know and love and trusted get me to a situation where I am so out of my depth and so um, uncomfortable, really, in dealing with what I needed to deal with? So the organisation was asking me to do this, but I personally felt like I was so ill-equipped to be the person dealing with it. Um, again, throughout all of those conversations, the mother was uh, repeatedly saying, oh, Chloe, wake up, Chloe. I just want to say that again to reinforce that it was a common theme across the conversations I was having with her. Um, the, at some point, the, the father arrived uh, in the hospital, in the emergency department. So he'd been out um, celebrating the birth of Chloe uh, and so he arrived and he was intoxicated when he arrived so there was it seemed to me that there was great difficulty for him trying to land himself in that room so understanding that he, he was his capacity to comprehend what was going on was impaired because he was he was drunk um, but he was trying so hard just to wrap his head around the fact that he was in an emergency department and needing to try and comprehend the fact that his daughter had just died overnight well, the irony of this is devastating, while he was out celebrating her birth. Um, some tension arose between the mother and the father, um, understandably in such an emotionally intense situation. There was some questioning around um, 
what had happened overnight and um, how Chloe had become unresponsive. Uh, the father then, he left, he left the emergency department. He, it seemed to me that it was more than he was able to comprehend at this point. He just needed to, to flee. He just couldn't be there and try and wrap his head around what was going on. Um, again, in that, in that moment after he'd left and I was with mum again on her own with, with the two-year-old who still was looking lost and had this uncertain role in this situation. There was no one else we could call to look after this two-year-old. Um, but there was this situation of trying to um, manage the mum and, and the other child as well at the same time. And I was very aware um, of the impact this situation would be having on that two-year-old. He was kind of not able to really grasp what was going on, but clearly felt something was happening that was bad and it was a, the heaviness was unmistakable. I think that impacted upon the child as well. Um, but I still felt like a stranger imposing in this deeply personal life experience for this family and a deeply devastating experience, but still a very deeply personal one. And who, who am I? Um, little old me, like walking up to ED, being so front and centre and trying to address and resolve and support them through this situation. There was just such a disconnection for me around what I was needing to do in the situation and what I felt like I could do. The question then came up for me around, what is my role here? Like, what am I supposed to be doing here? Is my primary purpose being a support for the mum? Am I meant to be a, like a babysitter for the two-year-old? Am I supposed to be the hospital um, representative in terms of facilitating the processes that happen when someone passes away in hospital? Or is my role here to be a support for the staff who are here dealing with it as well? And I realised that my, I was all of those things all at once, but I felt ill-equipped to be any of those things in their own right. There was a real, again, use the word disconnection between what I was needing to do and what I felt that I was able to do in that situation. Interestingly to me, the part where, or the part after the, the father left the emergency department, is the part where I stopped being able to recall and visually kind of um, recall what had happened in that situation. Uh, I either can't recall it or I blocked it out, I'm not sure which, but that is interesting to me that whether it's or not my <clears throat> ability to retain information hit its capacity or the situation was overwhelming to the point where I couldn't absorb any more or lay any more of that memory down, I'm not sure. Um, but I don't remember what happened after that situation, after that part of the situation. Um, knowing what I know about process when someone passes away in hospital and the death of a child, um, there were things that would have occurred uh, following up from that, um, but I just don't have any recollection of what those things were. My next um, recollection of that situation would then be on Monday morning when I was back at work. Uh, so this all happened in the, in the wee hours of Sunday morning while I was on call. So the next working day, Monday morning, I was back at my computer, uh, just going about my business and trying to organise my day. And one of the senior social workers came up to me um, and said that she'd heard about um, the on-call situation that I'd had and asked if I was okay. And I absolutely vividly remember feeling this innate and intense need to shut that conversation right down. I, I remember having palpitations and getting just innately so anxious that I was being asked um, and I just, I just knew that I needed to not have that conversation. So of course I said, no, I'm fine, no, it's fine, it was pretty intense, but I'm okay. Knowing, well, physically knowing, but I wasn't able to articulate that or recognise that for myself at that time, um, that I wasn't okay with it. But I felt this need just to not engage with the conversation. And I think the fear of 
having that all unravel. I think if I kind of said, actually, no, I'm not okay with that situation, it would have spiraled into a whole conversation around why am I not okay with that. So sometime after that situation, and I would say a couple of months, maybe three or four months, within that period, I didn't actively do anything to resolve or address or talk through um, the experience of that on-call situation, of that, the death of Chloe, and my involvement in that. Um, I probably didn't feel like I needed to, but in hindsight I recognised that I absolutely did need to. I started to develop um, auditory intrusions, so I kept at various times and un, um, at times where I was unprepared for it to happen, uh, I kept hearing the mother saying, oh Chloe, wake up Chloe, it would just come back to me at various points along the way. Um, and of course, that would then connect the dots for me to go straight back into that, that dark room with that emotional intensity and the heaviness of that particular on-call case. Um, so that, that happened quite a few times over the course of a couple of months where just out of the blue, um, I'd just be going about my business with no kind of real identifiable trigger that I could see, that would come up. Um, and then I would just be taken straight back into that situation. So in, in hindsight, I look back at that and realise that's an indication that there's something happening for me with that situation that's been left un unaddressed or not addressed. Um, so I've got to say, I think some of that, so those auditory um, intrusions did uh, go away over time, but I want to make the point that I didn't actively try and do that because I wasn't in a, in a position where I could acknowledge that they needed to, that I needed to address it. Um, I also, um, at that time, lived near the hospital I worked at. Uh, so I would hear the helicopters coming in and the ambulances coming along to go to hospital. So if I was at home, uh, I would hear the ambulances or the helicopters and I would just have this sense of anxiety, just about, just the, the sound of that was a trigger for me that provoked anxiety. Um, even if I wasn't on call, just kind of that, the sounds of those, the helicopter or the ambulance would take me back into that situation as well. Again, that resolved over time and it morphed more into a, something that's going on, I feel sorry for whoever's on call, um, but um, I didn't actively try and manage that situation. I just kind of accepted that was a part of um, the aftermath of the work that I was doing at the time. I think it then also manifested a bit into uh, my next role. So I moved then into a position in an intensive care unit for a couple of years. And um, although I, wouldn't, I would never have articulated it this way at the time, uh, looking back at that time and that experience, it's clear to me that over a period of time in ICU and being repeatedly exposed to situations of trauma and supporting people who are experiencing trauma, I became avoidant of ICU and the clinical work in ICU. So that work still got, got done, it's still you know, we need to do the work that we're being asked to do. Um, however, what I became aware of is that it was becoming more and more difficult for me to take myself from my desk when I get in the morning down into the ICU unit. And I started to favour parts of my role that were not the clinical components. So I kind of would have this dread around having to go down and, and confront these situations and the administrative parts of my role at that time were just were, were so much less confronting for me. Um, the tricky thing I think is, if you'd asked me at the time, did I need to have a break from that environment? I would have said no, because I loved it. 
um, and I still do love it, um, but I wouldn't, I wasn't at a point where I could recognize that something needed to be different or that it was having that impact on me. I knew it was taking me longer to get down to ICU and that there was an issue there. I knew there was something going on for me, but I couldn't allow myself to acknowledge that or address that because again, there was that fear of it all unraveling because I've framed myself as someone who really loves working in this space. So if I can't do this, what do I do? So looking back at these situations, it makes me question what was happening for me at the times, both when I was directly asked if I needed to talk through um, that particular case in ED with Chloe, or um, why I wasn't able to acknowledge the fact that I was struggling to um, uh, attend the work in ICU because of the nature of the content of that work. Um, it's a really curious thing to me that I just wasn't in a position to acknowledge that for myself. Um, I think it's amazing and great that someone had asked me after that um, incident with Chloe if I was okay. It makes me realise that the timing is so crucial because we can ask lots of questions around are people okay, do people need support and to debrief, but if they're not in a position where they're able to have that conversation, there's that disconnection again. Um, I think part of the issue is also around um, the culture. Uh, there certainly was a culture at that time we didn't really talk about this stuff so overtly. Um, there's almost a sense of in relaying um, a challenging case that you may have had on, on call or on the ward or wherever you might work. Um, there can at times be a sense of one upmanship where if I was to say, oh, I had this awful motor vehicle accident where someone passed away and the person I'm saying that to might say, oh, I guess it reminds me of a case where there were two vehicles and three people died and it was horrendous. And what that says to that person is, um, you can't be struggling with this because I've had something worse and I'm standing here in front of you. Um, but what it also says for the person who's doing that is this person's can't be worse than mine because mine must have surely been worse than theirs. Um, it's a really interesting uh, problem, I would say, in that we need to think about the way that we talk about uh, the aftermath or, or the vicarious trauma associated with being exposed to trauma. Um, and making sure there's a conversation in our departments or in our work teams or wherever we might work that allows that to happen um, in a supported way. I think there's a real cultural element to uh, making sure that conversations about this are happening and that it's a normal part of everyday conversation social work practice. I think there are lots of barriers to that happening. So I think one of them is around being seen as not coping. I think one of them is around um, an issue around questioning professional identity. If I can't do this, what do I do? Um, and if I can't do this but everybody else is, what's wrong with me? I think one of the other challenges are, is that trauma cases often seem to be worn like battle scars. So I think we all, we all I'm assuming social workers who um, are practicing have cases or stories that they can draw upon that were kind of the worst story or the worst case they've ever been involved with. And we just accept that that's a part of our work or our social work history. Um, and so we live with those situations. Um, I think there's an issue in there around um, needing to have had one of those experiences to have a place in that conversation. I think there's an issue in that around, um, by virtue of our work period, we have a place in that conversation. Um, however, just inadvertently through the work that people have been doing, they may find themselves having had cases or experiences where they have experienced um, some intensity or some sort of trauma-based um, or vicarious trauma.
One of the challenges I think is also around trying to seek support from managers or supervisors. So I work in public health and the general structure of support is that you would go to your supervisor who is also usually your team leader or your direct line manager or report, um, which I think is fraught with difficulty if we're trying to um, uh, talk freely about some of the challenges we're having in our work and get support for that by the people who are assessing our performance. It's fundamentally flawed, in my opinion. Um, so there's a challenge or a barrier to people being able to talk freely if the sense is that um, we're not able to talk about this or there's a fear of uh, repercussions if people do talk freely about their struggles with dealing with the content that they're exposed to at work. Um, and I think the important thing there is understanding that we need to frame this as a work health and safety issue. Um, in its simplest form, uh, by virtue of being at work in this environment, we are exposed to trauma. Um, therefore, it becomes a work health and safety issue in its simplest form. Oh, Liz, that haunting refrain. Chloe, wake up, Chloe. Oh, my God. That kills me. Oh, <laughs> that is chilling. And... Um, I mean, we will we'll talk a little bit more about some of the symptomology that he talks about, but that one's really interesting, that auditory intrusion. Isn't it? That was his and now has become mine. It's become mine as well. I know. But it is such a feature of vicarious trauma. But I have not heard of auditory intrusions described like that. He just described it so beautifully and now it all makes sense. Um, the other auditory intrusions, though, were the uh, ambulance sirens. And the helicopters. And so the helicopters. I get that. Yeah. Even to this day, and I haven't done on-call, like I do some backup, but the helicopters can still trigger me because where the hospital that I first did on-call, helicopters coming in, that's social work call-out. And yeah. they're never the nice call-outs. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast before about the experience of being on call and having to get up in the middle of the night. You don't really know exactly what you're going into. You suddenly have to pack your stuff. And the way he describes it as going from uh, the outside world and then into the fluorescent lights of the hospital and these dark spaces in the hospital that are so dark. That, right? that are normally lit up during the day. That's right. And that's where the family was. So that's... That's really visually very accurate, I felt like. Very um, frighteningly, I became there with him in that space. And the other thing about being on call is that you're alone. Yeah. And he talked about that a lot. And can we talk now about that sense of responsibility that that he felt? And we've talked about this on the podcast before, that often the social worker not only has to deal with the traumatic crisis that they've been called in for and supporting the family, yeah. but then also that sense of responsibility for the team. Yeah. And so there was that young doctor that was asking the social worker, is this okay? Like what I said, was that okay? Yeah. And that overwhelming sense of responsibility that he talked about, like I'm not only responsible for the mother – and this, this, and trying to provide support and hold space for her. But now I've got the whole team. And that sense of, I'm taking care of all these other people 
who's taking care of me? And I really felt so much for this social worker when he said that he felt betrayed by his profession, that actually he'd been built up and trained to be here in this moment, but without a safety net. Mm. And I, I would push that, Liz, and I would say not only is he betrayed by his profession, but at that moment he's also betrayed by his employing organisation. Mm. Because that is that is not fair for someone to feel at that moment in the middle of the night that they are that alone with no one to call for backup. Yeah. And, and the reality is that, well, certainly the hospital I work with and the other ones that I know of, there is a backup system where you can call a a senior social worker to provide support, workshop ideas about how you approach that particular case. So you're never alone. However, everyone feels reluctant to ring at 3am the person on backup. You know, Do you know like, what, though? There are a lot of smaller hospitals where the person on backup is the manager of the department. Yeah. So and, you don't want to call but, them. But the other thing that's really interesting, Mim, about the whole backup system mm. is that no one gets paid to be on no, that. No, that's right. So, I mean, that's another example of... The goodwill of social work a lot a lot of the time in relation to how our services are run. Do you know what that the goodwill of social work is an episode all in and of its own. But I really do wanna stress the risk that we have when we think about the coping of our social workers in an individual manner. Mm. So when we forget about the responsibility of the organisation, we only focus on our individual social workers. What comes from that? is what this social worker alluded to at the end of the interview or spoke about the interview, interview which was a culture of are you tough enough, right? Yeah. That one-upmanship, mm. okay? And when we have a culture like that, are you tough enough to do this work? What that means is that the responsibility for compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma falls squarely on your shoulders. Mm. No one else is going to jump in and support you because you're now labelled as weak. That and also I think there are probably a whole bunch of wounded healers in that department who their way of coping with a fellow social worker who might be struggling, as I would imagine this social worker was, is to self-reference. Like, you think that was bad. Huh, gosh, right. I got a trauma last Wednesday where there were 13 members of the family. <laughs> And you saw one it, family, it, I one, saw five. That's right. There wasn't just <laughs> one baby that passed away. I'm telling you, there was an entire village. That's it. So, like, I have a feeling that they can be – it's a defence mechanism. Yeah. I can't go there with you because I am up to here and people I'm kind of I'm gesticulating above my head with my own experience of vicarious trauma. Yeah. Um, and, and you and I both know from, from the preliminary research results that we have yeah. is that the on-call system can tip some social workers Absolutely. over the edge, that unpredictability, that isolation, but also you've just been working a full day. You're exhausted already You're before exhausted you start. You're exhausted already. Yeah. And, and we know that there is an accumulative nature to vicarious trauma but the other thing that that you and I have talked lots about is that when you're in the setting of ED for instance with an encore 
don't think there's anything vicarious about that at all. You're no, in the trauma, right? That's right. You become a part of that trauma. You're sitting in a room with a mother with a dead baby. Yeah. There's your trauma. Yeah. I mean, visually and now this auditory um, experience of it. So actually the social worker is traumatised as well. Yeah. It's another layer of trauma. Yeah. And this social worker really talked very acutely about that in terms of the symptoms, right? So he spoke about the fact that he lost his memory. And there was a whole period of time that he just simply cannot remember, mm. right? He talked about the auditory intrusions, the haunting refrain. He talked about how he became avoidant of the ICU intensive care work. Yes. Yeah, and he started favouring non-clinical work. So he started favouring that administrative managerial work. Got to tell you, that's a familiar concept, Liz. And uh, it absolutely is, Mim. And I thought the way in which he, he's a perfect case study in some regards to, you know, people who are saying, I, I'd really like to know how I can gauge if people in my department may be struggling. Yeah. Um, some of those um, behaviours that he was demonstrating are classic, but they're not the ones that are articulated. No, that's right. Because you can bury yourself in good admin work or a QI project or putting your hand up to take on more students. But what if the underlying driver there is because you're traumatised or experiencing vicarious trauma or compassion fatigue? Yeah. And so I want us now, Mim, to, to be able to talk about that whole that whole scenario where he's sitting in his room, right, and I don't know if that was a supervisor or manager that comes in and says, are you okay? Are you okay? Mm. And remember he said, I said, yeah, 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 fine, because I was so frightened of unravelling at that moment. That's right. But I He really, brushed it off. I'm really curious because, look, I, I, like, I think in some regards it's like who hasn't experienced burnout in, yeah. in, in the social work profession? So I know that when I burnt out, People outside of me saw it more clearly than what I did. But I'm really curious about what that person could have said or acknowledged to him to let yeah. him know that it was okay to be able to talk about what was going on for him. So the way he said it was that he was sitting at his desk just kind of starting his day, getting his head back into things and someone came over, stopped in quickly and said, hey, I heard about that call out, how are you? Right. Yeah. So what are we thinking that actually, because I, I would say that that is a very well-meaning, well-intentioned person who is probably also starting their day at that point and probably thinking about the million things that they also have on their agenda for the day. So... Are we, like when we're trying to really articulate what it is that person could have done, are we thinking some of the more classic social work relationship building techniques of taking the person aside, sitting in a more quiet space, having a more in-depth discussion, like making it less flippant? Yes. What are you thinking, Liz? I think I think you're right in a number of those points that it, it, it's about choosing the right time, the right place, Um and I guess having the right relationship with that person that they can talk about the impact that it's had. And and you're probably right, Mim, as I'm listening to you, it possibly was too soon at that moment. I to, think it was too soon. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to get at. Yes. That there's a limit to what um, managers, team leaders, senior social workers, whatever the role is in your organisation, there is a limit at that very close point in time to what can be done effectively. Mm. What I 
my instinct and coming out of the research as well from what people have talked about was helpful it seems to me is actually the ongoing relationship with the person so it's not a quick check-in it's actually a quick check-in plus a follow-up informal supervision plus another quick check-in plus a come and have lunch with me do you know what I mean yes but it's more than just that and and is that their supervisor is that their manager is that their colleague or friend or is it a combination of all of the above that that, that the culture is around how we regularly check in with each other um, and that it's not just the onus on the social worker saying, I am struggling here, but an acknowledgement of what we do in our work is hard work yes. and that we do need to create an environment in which people can be held in, that, in, that, in the work that they do. And I think that's the other thing that you and I have often talked about, how, how often the emphasis is on the self-care, but how much responsibility is it of the organisation to create a safe workplace for our social workers? And how do we know that there is a safe... When we go to apply for a job... Yeah. How do we check that stuff out? You know, is it enough to go, oh, you know, what's your supervision like here? Is that enough? What's your work health and safety policies around? But also how well do we know that all it takes is one manager to change and the culture will change, right? So we know how tricky and fickle a culture can be. That's the reality for people. You go to somewhere, you think, wow, I've landed somewhere amazing. And then something shifts. And when you think back to what it was that shifted, it was a crucial staff change usually that did it. So I, my feeling is that rather than continuously trying to build armour for ourselves as a profession around being making ourselves tougher in many ways, my feeling is that we actually need to just get a bit real in this profession about the impact that our jobs have on us and being able to create a culture in the profession that says it's okay to be vulnerable. As we a, go Brene on this one. We, oh, we absolutely go Brene, but we always do. But, um, but absolutely that actually to be able to say it's not that it takes strength to be able to do this job. It's that it in many ways takes vulnerability. And if you're going to be sitting with other people in times of vulnerability, then you need to be okay with your own vulnerability. And that means being able to put your hand up and say, I've had a really hard call out. I've had a really hard week. I'm really tired and I need my colleagues and I need my friends and I need my family and I need to get outside at lunchtime and see the blue sky and do something a bit different for a minute because what struck me with that conversation when the social worker was saying he was going to get in on that admin and I mean that happened to me Liz it happened to you right with we me, wouldn't be sitting here right now would we if we, we wouldn't it was out. one of the things we initially connected on that we both burnt out and I when I burn out I then sunk myself into education when you burnt out it was Same. education as well wasn't it mm. like this is the most common thing that happens, right? And one of the things that's come out of our research is actually that having a variety in your workload helps to ward off compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma. So one of the things we need to look out for each other around is, is it time to do something a little bit different? And if it is, that's not about betraying your colleagues. 
It's actually about taking care of yourself. Because I think if everyone was doing that, then there's not a sense of, oh, you're shirking. That's like, right. Oh, I've got to carry the load. And probably I can I can hear you. I can hear you, the people listening in the podcast going, that's all well and good when you're fully staffed. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of you out there. Or the flu season hasn't hit. Or, you know, half the department have been seconded over to elsewhere. I, I, I do hear that. I do hear that. But despite all that, how do we create a culture that moves beyond just self-caring in the yoga class and creating something at a departmental level as well? And, like, I absolutely agree with you about the management issue you know a great manager makes a hell of a difference like a principal at a school absolutely but Mim I think that wouldn't have been the case I mean yes that would have been the case with our miners but I'm using the metaphor of a mine okay and all the work health and safety stuff that that went on to create mines as a safer workplace or at building sites yeah they have worked long and hard and the unions have been involved in creating work health and safety guidelines and somewhere in there I think we can learn from it like what constitutes a safe workload and and it will look different in in different clinical areas but why aren't we having those conversations yeah we uh, know that absolutely. there are always going to be beds that need to be you know people have to be you know discharged that, that'll always exist but when do we come to a point where you go and that's all I can do today people that's yeah. I have reached my limit and I think there needs to be more discussion around safe workloads for our social workers. I would agree completely with that, Liz. And we get um, a bit sidetracked by thinking through the impact on our patients and our families yeah. and our clients in um, non-health settings and what happens when the social worker walks away and they're the only one holding this case. We need to think smarter about being collectively responsible for the vulnerable people that we work with so that we can take care of ourselves as well as provide continuity of care for them. Yes. So... Liz, this is one of those topics that you and I have been speaking about for the last minimum three years, if not longer, from the day we met and um, and could continue to do so. Well, I think we should, Mim, and I think closer to when um, the results of the research comes yeah, out. Yeah, we can talk about them. Um, and there will be articles that, that, yes. that you'll be publishing on it. And I think that it needs to be a constant theme. And one of the things I'm really interested in is sometimes when we do those interviews with social workers – they do talk a little bit about some of the things that they find really useful in their work around caring of self or what makes their work safer. And I think maybe every so often we include a bit more of that in their yeah. story. Yeah, I think that's really valid. Um, I think this is a really pertinent issue for all of our listeners, whether you're a social work student thinking about how you're going to survive in this profession or whether you're an experienced practitioner who's made it this far and um, and is needing more inspiration and more um, strength behind you to keep going. Like I think this is really actually a collective responsibility that we or have. whether you are the social worker that went off and opened that coffee shop yeah. or florist yeah. like you'd always thought you would whether you've actually done that because that was always my barometer I need a bit of a break when I'm fantasizing about running my own coffee shop or bookstore yeah the one of the moments when I realized that um I was exhausted was when I went to visit my cousin years ago who was a jeweler and I went and stood in her store 
and looked at all these beautiful gemstones. And I thought, how is it that you are surrounded by all this beauty all day, every day? And I do the work that I do. Mm. That's when I, that was one of the key moments when I realised how tired I was. And I think that's the stuff we need to start cluing into mm. and then taking those moments of revelation and going to our colleagues, going to our managers, going to our friends and family and saying, I need to be proactive now. Right. And, you know, let's segue mm. again and encourage our listeners to talk to us yeah. about those very issues yeah that's exactly right and mim how do our listeners do that everyone hit us up on twitter or instagram at at s-o-w-k stories pod or send us an email we'd love to hear from you directly on social work stories podcast at gmail.com thank you so much to ben joseph and justin stesh our producers Katie, our social work student, who has been out there doing interviews for us. And um, and we're about to welcome a journalism student as well onto our podcast series, Liz. So it's an exciting time. Uh, stay tuned, listeners. Speak and to you next time. I'd just like to say a big take care. Yeah, You're doing please. great work. Look after yourselves. You really are. See you later, Liz. Bye. Bye. Bye.